back together. Thank you, Eric. Maybe you can uh, stay and preach a little bit. <laughs> Please open with me to the book of Matthew as we look at uh, verses 14 through 17 in chapter 9. I know the women will know this saying. Uh, some men might. Uh, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. And it finishes, actually, with a saying that we don't say anymore, a sixpence in your shoe. That was a uh, Victorian times a, a saying that came about uh, because of what was called the evil eye. A uh, bride uh, would be walking down the aisle and another woman who maybe got spurned by this man, would give the bride an evil eye. And there was a superstition that that evil eye that was given was a curse that would, that would inhibit them from having children. And so this saying and, and, and this superstition grew up that if you wore something old and something new and something borrowed and something blue and that you put a sixpence, an English sixpence in your shoe, that would protect you from that curse. Now, today we don't obviously do that for this reason, but it's come down to us as tradition, hasn't it? And some brides still continue to do this. I'd, I'd be curious, just as those here uh, and maybe at home, I can't see you, but any, any women here that carried that tradition on in their wedding, they, they wore something? Okay, the majority of them. Wore something old, new, borrowed, and blue. Did anybody put a sixpence or a piece of money in their shoe? Ha! Ah, one. Okay. So you're, now, now look at how many kids she has. <laughs> Tradition is good. Tradition is good. It gives people, it gives families, it gives cultures and society stability and roots. It tethers you to the past, which is a good thing. But it's also potential of danger with tradition, isn't there? There's a potential, there's, there's a downside of tradition. Jaroslav Pelikan famously quipped this, Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Isn't that true? In other words, tradition is a good thing, but it's a kind of a double-edged sword because what tradition can do is it can calcify over time, can't it? And become traditionalism, the dead faith of the living, resistant to any change. In our text this morning, Jesus comes up against traditionalism. And he answers with an incredible claim and then an incredible change. First, let's look at the incredible claim that Jesus makes. Let's look with me at Matthew chapter 9. He is still at the dinner table with Matthew and those tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees have just confronted him 
And now a different group comes up to him. John the Baptist's disciples. They've been hanging around Jesus, this group of men, we don't know how many, have been hanging around Jesus since, since John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John said to his disciples, disciples, I must decrease, he must increase. And he even sent some of his disciples and said, follow him. So they've been a part of this crowd that has been following Jesus, okay? They've been a part of this crowd. Maybe they were even sitting on the, the mount when, when Jesus preached that sermon. We don't know. They've, been, they've per- perhaps seen his miracles that he has been been performing around Capernaum here. They've watched and been there as, uh, certainly in this context, as Jesus answered the Pharisees just previous. And they have a question of their own. They come to Jesus and they ask, look at verse 14 with me. They ask, Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we in the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? This is a logical question coming from John's disciples, isn't it? This is a logical question. The Mosaic law commanded that fasting be done on the Day of Atonement and at other occasions. Over time, the Jews had, had kind of ritualized or, or made part of their religion, part of their, their discipline, fasting. It was one of the three ways that a good uh, honest Jew, a good Jew, would show his religiosity by fasting, by praying, and by giving alms, right? The Pharisees had taken this fasting and made it into a routine in their life. It was said that on Mondays and Thursdays, the Pharisees would fast twice a week. They often went to great lengths to show that they were religious, and one way they did that is through fasting. And by kind of letting people know that they were fasting, didn't they? You saw this interaction there when Jesus, back in chapter 6, uh, talks about fasting, right? And he, I think he has the Pharisees in mind when he says, When you fast, do not look somber like the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces and show men that they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. I think Jesus had the Pharisees in mind. This, this religious group or any, any person who wanted to show how religious they were by fasting. And apparently John's disciples picked up on this too. They were, they were used to the discipline of fasting in their life. But their fasting was a little different in motivation than the Pharisees. John's message, if you remember, John the Baptist's message was a message of repentance and sorrow looking forward to the Messiah, right? That was his message. That was his predominant message, preparing the way. And Jesus knows this, and so he answers them, making an incredible claim about himself, telling them an incredible thing about who he is. Look at verse 15 with me. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bride is with them? He answers them, with a question, right? He's challenging the way they're thinking, the way that they're approaching this. Jesus knows exactly what he is saying when he says this. And so do John's disciples because they were schooled in the Old Testament. They were discipled by John the Baptist. 
In the Old Testament, the, the, uh, God would often portray himself to his people through the image of a bridegroom. He would call himself the bridegroom and his people the bride. We see that in numerous places in the Old Testament. One is what we just read for our public reading of Scripture. I hope you picked up on it. In Isaiah 62, we just read together, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bride rejoices over, the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. You have to understand the parallelism there, right? Hebrew uses parallelism to say one thing and then say it again in a different way so that you understand what he's trying to convey. You see this bridegroom and bride displayed most prominently and maybe most poignantly in the book of Hosea. If you remember the whole book of Hosea, the the idea there being that God calls Hosea to marry Gomer, this unfaithful wife, this prostitute that is unfaithful to him, giving Israel a physical picture of how they should be in this intimate covenant relationship, but the bride keeps breaking it. God being this bridegroom, Hosea playing that role, and the Israel, his people, and us playing the role of, of Gomer. And so when Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, John's disciples know exactly what he's claiming to be. Jesus is claiming to be God come in the flesh. He tells them with loaded Old Testament language, he's the one that they've been fasting and yearning for. He is that loving God come in the flesh. He is that Emmanuel of Isaiah 7. This God coming to be with his people. He is the long-awaited Messiah that they fasted for and yearned for. And God coming to be with his people is not a time for fasting and mourning, he's saying, but celebrating and rejoicing. Like at a wedding, that's the illusion. That's the, that's the connection that God wants us to make. He wanted them to make. It's to be a, a celebration like a wedding. A Jewish wedding, would, the celebration would go on for a week. You know, ours kind of pale in comparison, so to speak, in time. Theirs would go on for a week. Imagine these small little villages and a wedding would take place and, and the family of the, of the bride, of the, of the groom would open their house and there would be dancing and eating and fun and celebrating all week long. And the whole bill was footed by the bridegroom's family. What a description of the age that Jesus is ushering in. That's what he's telling his, the John's disciples. That's the image that he wants them to understand. An age where the bridegroom is going to pay for it all. That's what the gospel is all about. God paying for it all. He foots the entire bill. He, we're celebrating a time uh, in, in, 
this month when we focus on him coming in the flesh. And that's what Jesus did. So that he could foot the bill, he had to live a perfect life as a human. And that's what he did. He earned his way into heaven. He earned his good standing before God. The only person that can do that. The only person that ever has done that. And he lived that life. He earned that standing before God, that unblemished standing, so that he could actually go to the cross and be that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why he, he struggled under the law. And brothers and sisters, he did struggle under the law. It was not a cakewalk for him to obey. And he earned that acceptance before God. He earned being the unblemished lamb. And then he went to the cross and sacrificed himself willingly for you and me. That's actually what the second half of verse 15 tells us. He says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Here Jesus is talking about his suffering and death on the cross. Paying the penalty for sin that God set up. Death. But even this in his death, isn't there a cause for celebration for us? Yes, it's a, it's a time of sorrow. But this side of the cross, we understand that it's also a time of celebration. Because Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? He rose from the dead, conquering, as was mentioned earlier, the power of sin, which is death. That's the power that sin has on a life. It leads to death. And he conquered that. He broke that curse. And he continues to live. Brothers and sisters, Jesus continues to live, interceding on our behalf. Spiritually nourishing us through what we did last week taking the Lord's Supper together. There's something spiritual going on there. Christ's presence is with us in a special way when we celebrate communion together. That's why it is such an important part of our body life together. That is why the elders are saying, no, everybody has to take it. We're going to take it to all of our members out there. Because this is an important spiritual nourishing through the presence of Christ He encourages us spiritually from within. Have you ever thought about that? Christ encourages us spiritually from within. What a wonderful truth to meditate on. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ and is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives where? In me. Colossians 1.27 says, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. What's this mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Have you ever considered, brothers and sisters, that Christ's presence is with you, encouraging you, loving you, being near to you? As I thought about it this week, I was reminded of the end of that hymn, He Lives. Do you know that hymn, He Lives? I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. 
in just the time I need him. He's always near. And then the end of the chorus says, He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. Ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Christ with you. The hope of glory. The joy of having Christ with you. It's a cause of great joy. And that's one of the reasons, just one of the reasons that we as people should be marked as people of joy. Christ is alive, living to encourage you and to nourish you. Christ is alive. We're always on his mind. Christ is alive, spiritually within you, near to the ones he loves. And that should bring us great joy. That's the kind of joy that I think Paul kind of as he was writing the, the letter to the Ephesians, got to a point that bubbled over. You see that sometimes in the letters, where there's a point where the, the, the gospel writer or the, or the letter writer just bubbles over. And I think we see that in Philippians 4, when Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Why? Oh, brothers and sisters, interact with the text as you're reading it. Why? Because he answers it in the very next line. Because God is near. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Rejoice. That's why this time of year is so joyful. That's why we sing hymns like we just sang. That's why we sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. He is near. Joy should be a mark of of a regenerate believer. It shows that you understand your spiritual context. I remember I, uh, I did a wedding years ago out on Long Island. A uh, dear friend of mine, he married an uh, ex-Catholic girl that came from a very, very Catholic family. Okay, I didn't know how very Catholic they were until I got there and I proceeded to start the wedding ceremony. The bride came in and what are you supposed to do when the bride comes in? Stand up, right? What did the mother do? Stay seated. I said, "Uh uh-oh, something's going on here. All throughout the ceremony, she sits, you know, body language tells a lot. Arms crossed, legs crossed, head down. The whole ceremony. She did not like that her daughter was marrying a Protestant. The wedding reception, same thing. Dancing, you know, joy, celebration. Where was the mother? At the table with a little teacup, not doing anything. Joyless. And in that context, everybody knew it. Because her demeanor was so out of place. That's part of the challenge that this text brings to you and me today. A sullen and morose Christian is out of place. 
doesn't make sense. And not everybody is going to be like one of my favorite characters in Scrooge is the ghost of Christmas present, right? This joyful guy laughing. Yeah, I mean, he, he just exudes joy. Not everybody's going to exude joy that way, brothers and sisters. I'm not saying that. Some rejoice quietly. I'm also not saying, and Scripture is not saying, that our life struggles shouldn't impact us. They do. You can go to my wife right now and ask about this week. I, this was a hard week, and, and, and I came home one night, and I was not joyful. I was just the opposite. Yeah, life rolls over you. We get that. But that shouldn't be the norm for a Christian. Because of what Christ has done for you. Helmut Tillich, the theologian, said, the glum, sour faces of many Christians, they would rather give the impression that instead of coming from the Father's joyful banquet, They've just come from the sheriff who has auctioned off their sins and are now sorry they can't get them back. Dear Christian, if that describes you, begin to meditate on the promises of God. If that's your proclivity, and I know it is for all of us sometimes, some of you specifically, perhaps refresh your soul on thinking more and more of what Christ has done on your behalf. Recall, perhaps, the, the, the things in your life that are dragging you towards that position are not ultimate things. The ultimate things have been taken care of in Christ. And perhaps there is a little discipline that needs to be brought to bear there. Meditate on those things. Remember how near your Savior is to you. That he lives within your heart. That he loves you more than his own life. Now Jesus doesn't stop there. He could have, but he goes on to tell John's disciples an incredible change that is about to occur. An incredible change that is about to occur. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. Jesus goes on and says, No one puts a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. And uh, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. R.C. Sproul tells the story of a friend of his who grew up as a missionary in Ethiopia. One day his family had to make a 500-mile trip over pretty rugged terrain to Addis Ababa for medical supplies. They hadn't gone very far in their car, he says, until the first flat tire happened. The father got out, took the tire off, patched it, put it back on. They got back on the road. Not too many miles later, another flat. Same same thing. 
little further on, another flat. They eventually got to the point where he had no more flat uh, patch kits. And so the father had no other, other recourse but to just continue driving on the flat tires. And it wasn't long before those flat, those tires, the rubber was just shredded. He couldn't go on the rims, so the father sat there thinking what they, he could do. They were in the middle of nowhere. He came up with an idea. He, he took his rifle and he shot an antelope, skinned it, and it's, he says that the father took long strips of their hide and, and sewed it together, stuffing the inside of the hide with grass from the fields. He fixed all four tires this way, and they actually finished their trip to Addis Ababa. You see, the father came to the realization that patching the old tires was not going to work. He needed new tires. He needed a tire that wasn't filled with air so it could be punctured. He needed a whole new tire. He needed to rethink the whole tire. That's exactly kind of what Jesus is saying to John's disciples here. The question John's disciples are making is stuck in Old Testament thinking. Why, why aren't you fasting? Why aren't your disciples fasting? Why aren't you yearning for the Messiah to come? And Jesus tells them that since he has come, things are going to begin to change. Things are, need to change radically. And this change should have surpri- not have surprised them. That's something that, that the Old Testament says again and again. When this new age that the Messiah is ushering in is, comes, it's going to be different. Listen to what Jeremiah 31 says, verses 31 through 34. Specifically, A time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. The Old Testament foretold this new and greater covenant coming, that things would change. And the Old Covenant laws will no longer apply in the same way. And to continue doing those things in the Old Covenant is like practicing the dead faith of the living. It's traditionalism. And brothers and sisters, traditionalism destroys. Traditionalism destroys. Jesus gives two examples of the kind of havoc that reeks. The first is repairing a hole in a garment with a new patch. See, the old garment is already shrunk. 
and you put a, a new piece of cloth on an old garment and then you wash it again, that new piece of cloth shrinks and tears away and makes a bigger hole. Second example he says is like putting new wine into old wineskins. So what they would do is take a, a goat, similar animal, and make a wineskin of it and, and then pour new wine that was still fermenting into that wineskin. And that new skin could expand with the fermentation and take the gases. But once it's expanded, that's all it's going to expand. And so if you were to empty that out and put in new wine again into that old wineskin in the fermenting bubble start, that wineskin will burst. It has nowhere to go. It's fully expanded. And as Jesus says, you lose both the wineskin and the wine. In other words, traditionalism, holding on to the old when the new comes, is terribly destructive. I think that has two applications, at least two applications for us this morning. The first is to the church. To the church. It dis- traditionalism destroys the church. Jeremiah's prophecy speaks specifically of radical change. And if you read in the book of Hebrews, which is basically the answers in the back, right? We all know that there's answers in the back of book. Hebrews is that book for the Old Testament. In Hebrews 8.6, it says that the new covenant will be founded on better promises. Better promises like a superior mediator. No longer Moses, but Jesus. A superior high priest. No longer the temple high priest, but Jesus is our high priest. Superior sacrifices, no longer bulls and goats, but Jesus himself. Superior intimacy, no longer in form, but in reality, spiritual reality, Christ in us. Superior reach, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles and for the whole world. And it goes on and on and on. And the early church really struggled with these, didn't they? They struggled with this change in form. So much so that a council was held in in Acts chapter 15 to try and come to grips with this. All these new Gentiles coming in. What do you mean, Gentiles? So much so that that the, the apostles had to write letter after letter after letter after letter after letter explaining these changes. And if people hold on to those type of old forms, what Paul wrote in Galatians 5.15 basically comes true. He writes there, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed. And that is what happens in churches today that try and hold on to old forms. That's what happens in churches today that try and hang on to their traditionalism. It destroys them. In Tom Rainer's book, An Autopsy of a Deceased Church, he lists basically nine factors of a, of a dying church that are common. Nine things that, that a church holds on to and it kills them. Obsession over facilities. No clear purpose, he says. They rarely pray together. 
as a body. Short pastoral tenure. The budget is inward focused and not outward focused. And he goes on. But he starts with the number one reason why churches die. And he calls it, the past is the hero. The past is the hero. They hold on to old forms of doing things rigidly. Old forms of worship, of music, of style, of schedules. Old ways of doing things, traditions, room use. We don't do that in that room. How you dress. All these things. And Rainer says, dying churches often cling to things in the past with desperation and fear. And when any external or external force tries to change the past, they respond with anger and resolution, saying in so many words, I will die before I change. And he writes, and they do. And some churches try superficial changes, thinking it will help. They try to patch things on old forms. One of the most common is, you know, if we just get a young pastor in here, he'll revitalize the church. That's a patch on an old garment. Another great one is, you know what? We will just do contemporary music. That'll bring the new people in. That's a new patch on an old garment. That's new wine in an old wineskin. And the prime example of that And God bless this church is Manset Union Church did that very thing. You know, we'll just play contemporary music and that'll bring it in. We'll get rid of the pews and bring in chairs and that will revive our church. And I love Chuck Ives. But I told him at the time, that's not going to revive this church. That's new wine in an old wineskin. What dying churches need to understand is that radical change is needed. You cannot put a patch on it. You cannot put new wine in it. And when you try to do that, they explode. They rip. They're destroyed. And that's what happens to churches like that. Second application is more personal. We need to realize that when Jesus comes into your life, he has designs to change everything. When Jesus comes into your life, he has designs to change everything. Tim Keller explains that many people misunderstand what Jesus wants to do in salvation. They misunderstand what Jesus' intent is. He says that many people think that when they come to Christ, that he will come into their house and knock down a few walls, put a window here, a new door there. Basically, they think that salvation is a kind of gentle renovation of their life. But what God intends, he says, when a person comes to Christ, is demolition. He comes into a life and knocks everything down and rebuilds from the ground up. Yet we like the renovation approach, don't we? That's what we're most comfortable with. Just renovate me. Don't make me totally new. Don't take down every idol don't, don't rewire all my thinking. We don't want to change too much, only if it's comfortable. We don't want to give up too much of our old life, only what is comfortable to us. We don't want to change the way we think. 
And brothers and sisters, we have to realize that when if if you are a new creature in Christ, the old has gone, the new has come. He wants to scrape to the foundation and rebuild you. That's his intention. You see, a sinner should be and can be reasonably happy with sin in their life. A non-Christian can be reasonably happy, in fact, very happy, with sin remaining in their life, with doing things that are sinful. But a true believer never will. As a Christian, sin only makes you miserable because the old is incompatible with the new, just like the wineskin, just like the garment. Now, we understand that it is a progressive thing in the life. We understand that. It's not instant. It's progressive. But we have to be able to ask ourselves questions and allow other people to ask ourselves questions. Questions like, what wall is Christ targeting for demolition in your life that you want to keep up? What does he want to radically change in your life that you are resisting? These are good questions to ask. What walls are you protecting from Christ's wrecking ball? Because, dear Christian, the old is not compatible with the new. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. You can't put a new patch on an old garment. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And Spirit, I know that in my life, as I was meditating on this this week, there are walls that I protect. There are things that I resist, that I want to retain, that I know don't please you. I ask you to help me, Lord, and help us as we have heard and sat under your word. Help us not to resist your change and your total renovation of our life down to the very foundation because you promised to build us back up into that new man, that new creation that honors you, that lives holy in your sight. Lord, rebuild us. In Jesus' name, amen.